The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be getting in just a few moments uh, back. Like I say, about a month ago, we kind of looked into this book, beginning it at least, and began kind of an introduction. I won't go back over much, if any, of that, but I'll remind you that I happen to be a believer. I may be the only one with this opinion that most of Paul's epistles, the one that Paul's would, would be inspired to write, most of them, he pretty much self-introduces. And so a lot of times, other than just a few factors that you'll tie back in, for example, his epistles generally always tie back in the book of Acts. Other than those types of things, a lot of times you can just pick up one of his letters and start reading it there in verse 1. And generally speaking, this is generally speaking, by the time you get through about the first three to eight verses, you've kind of got a self-introduction going. Uh, Paul will much of that time, obviously, he'll tell you who he is. Uh, he'll tell you a little bit about him. Sometimes he'll claim his apostleship, sometimes not. Uh, it's, he has it regardless, but it depends on what situation is to whether or not he calls claim to that. He will tell you, generally speaking, why he's writing to these people, uh, what their major needs are, the things he wants to call their attention to. And generally speaking, you can find out a good bit from, again, those first three to eight verses. And that's pretty much what you find here in the book of Philippians. I did tell you for introductory purposes, however, this book right here, just, again, maybe my opinion, is probably his most personal letter. Now, obviously, when he writes to Philemon, which is a book that we studied two quarters or three maybe ago, uh, when he wrote to Philemon, he was writing to an individual, and so obviously there were some very personal things there. But even still, this is the most personal letter he would write to a group or a church. And as he comes to them, he comes to them with a great purpose in mind. And I think that major overlying purpose, and we've used this or said this several weeks ago, has to do with presenting to them a case for joy. Uh, not only is the word joy found in this book a number of times, about six in the English King James translation at least, it's also found in the word rejoice another 11 times. So basically, uh, looking at that, that six and that 11, and then there is a few other times, or are a few other times, where you'll find the joy that he, come, that he gains from God kind of coming up. He won't necessarily use the word, uh, but in, in general, it's all the way through the book. It's a major theme of the book. We keep in mind as we study this letter, just like you would any of the others, try to at least learn something about the situation he was in, the time of writing. And I've referenced that so many times. I think this book here was written sometime around 68-ish. Um, you could look and do some other research, 63, 65, or some of the suggested dates as well. Uh, this may be as early as 58, so you can put it anywhere in there, but later 50s, early to mid 60s, something like that would probably be about the time of writing, and that being the case, and we do know this from reading the letter, Paul is in prison when he writes it. And so anytime he mentions rejoicing or the word joy or his situation and such and him being positive in that and confident in that, uh, keep reminding yourself, and I've reminded myself of several times this week, even looking at it, and especially today, 
But Paul was in dire straits. He was in a terrible situation. So we get in situations in life, at least I know I do, and I know you do from watching from the outside, where it's pretty easy for us to get frustrated, uh, to get uh, to a point where we get depressed or downtrodden or whatever by what's going on in our lives, particularly the physical brings that on. Uh, physical things oftentimes affect the emotional, and once the emotions are affected, the spiritual can be affected. But again, Paul is writing this from prison, and he's not writing this from a really easy situation. He's most likely in a Roman prison, and he's most likely, and he even mentions such, in bonds or in chains. And so you imagine every word that he writes here, he's writing from the perspective of a man who's literally chained. And I've thought about that many times and thought, well, that, you know, that looks something like uh, the things you'd see in the television or movies. You know, a man's chained to a pole or chained to this, chained to a bar or something like that. He's more than likely chained to another man. And so we think about these prison guards and that sort of thing. And a lot of times when Paul was put into prison, he was not just chained to a, uh, a location as much as he was chained to individuals. And Paul always took advantage of that. And even in this letter, I've, I know it by where it falls on my page from looking at it so many times, but when Paul starts to speak uh, about the things that he's enduring, verse 13, for example, and, and how that <clears throat> what's going on with him in his bonds, you might see as a disadvantage, for him was many times an advantage because he had people uh, we would call them the captive audiences. So people who were physically chained to him, who as long as they were on their shift, whatever that was, he had free reign to speak. And they did not have a way of escape of that. We know specifically from looking at his situation in Philippi, uh, when he was there, when he was in prison there, from Acts chapter 16, the latter half of that chapter at least, that's where we get the account that is given to us about the Philippian jailer. And you remember exactly what the situation was going on there around verse 25. It says there that Paul and Silas were singing praises and praying to God. And so in spite of being in prison, in spite of perhaps being chained to a wall, a bar, a floor, or, or even another human being, uh, these individuals, Paul being the main one of the two, uh, was singing praises to God. So his situations were difficult, but yet he found joy in spite of such. And so that's kind of the generalized theme of the book. And so I gave you or I gave you an opportunity to get, I don't know how many we're able to get, but there are outlines that are on the website on the home page at the very bottom. I have a few more of the printed copies of the outlines. I've got one outline that I held up maybe that month or so ago that's very in depth. Um, I don't know how many points there are. Well, there are four points, but I mean, they're like eight points subdividing all of those. So very in depth. That's more generally what we're going to use as we go through this letter. Uh, however, in addition to that, I had a, a little extra outline that was available also that had some smaller outlines. There's one, two, three, four, about six more of those uh, smaller outlines. And the way I outlined that was to just say chapter one is, chapter two is, chapter three is. So there's one point for each chapter being four chapters. So there's several, several four-point outlines. And I would encourage you when you're reading and studying the book on your own at home to maybe... Uh, take those smaller outlines and say, okay, I'm going to read the book through today because you could easily do it in a, uh, just a few minutes sitting and say, well, I'm going to take it this first outline today. And when I'm reading it, for example, one of those is Christ is our life. That's the first point for chapter one. 
Before you start reading, so I'm going to look and see how this chapter says Christ is our life. And then go through it like that. That's just a suggestion. But those are some more of those are available if you need to get some of those afterwards, whatever. But the more in-depth outline, again, is what we'll generally use. We started looking at the text after that. Uh, we'll reread that first verse again. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with bishops and deacons. Of course, there, again, is part of that introductory material that he gives. He says he is Paul. That's who's writing the book. We've talked quite a bit about his name from other of uh, these letters that we have uh, studied. Of course, Timothy, Timotheus, he mentions there, uh, being there at least present or at least in mind with him. And he called on the name of Timothy in several of these epistles uh, you could assume it would be for one reason or another. More than likely, it would be my opinion at least that he's just calling on Timotheus' name. Not only is he a fellow servant of him, he describes him, but Timothy is someone who may be very familiar to the brethren in Philippi. And, of course, several of these other letters. He does the same thing to the Ephesians and so forth, the Colossian brethren. They knew Timothy. And even though they knew Paul somewhat, and Paul had been exposed to them a lot of times, for these churches particularly, Timothy was the one they had spent more time with. There were situations like that one in Ephesus where Paul comes in with Timothy. They spend some time there together. And then he turns and leaves Timothy behind. And so I don't know if you'd call Timothy the located preacher. He seems to be that in a few of those congregations. And so they were very familiar with him. And so calling on his name would bring probably some good thoughts to their mind and also give a little bit more affirmation as to the information that he's about to give to them in whatever the letter is. He says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. That word servants uh, coming from the Greek word, I pronounce them by uh, Munford terms, not Grecian terms, but doulos, something like that, um, carries with the idea of a bond servant or a slave. And it's a voluntary slave. And that's what both Paul and Timothy were. And I think if you didn't go any farther than that, of course, we would need to read further to understand the letter. But if you didn't go any farther than that, if we started right there to, to drive down our points and our minds and the lessons that we learn, we could say right there, in order to serve God, like Paul did, I would need to be enslaved to God or a servant to Jesus Christ. And I would need to give myself over to that. And of course, again, that's a voluntary thing. My, God has never forced anyone to serve Him. Uh, but in this case, these two men at least that are mentioned, and of course us, we would hope today would be the same, we're volunteering to serve. He says they are specifically servants of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus obviously being his birth-given name, more physical name, more human uh, side of him, Christ calling on the fact that he was a part of the deity, but specifically that he is the Messiah. And I'll make this point several more times because at least three times in the next three verses he'll come up with something of this sort. But anytime Paul, and you think about this in the earlier days of the church, and I'm talking about maybe 30 years post, put this letter early 60s, mid 60s, maybe 30 years or so after the establishment of the church. Anytime Paul brings that up where there's a present uh, part of the former Jewish audience available, they immediately, some of them, 
probably either turn deaf ears or snap their necks because he's about to call upon Jesus Christ as being equal with God. And he specifically does that in the next phrase or so. But he says they're servants of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to, if you want to know who he's writing to, he said he's writing to the saints at Philippi. And what does it mean to be a saint? We've brought that word out so many times. It means uh, literally to be set apart, to be holy. It's the Greek word here that sounds something like, at least the way I say it, hagios, and it carries with the idea of the holy ones. And the word saint is always in the plural, save one occasion we'll get to a lot later in this book, and even then it's just, it just doesn't have the S. It doesn't imply that he's specifying that there's one saint in any given place. Why even bring that up? Because there's a whole religion built around the fact of certain individuals, men, getting what they would call sainthood and getting some special elite title or place in life because they've been determined by other human beings to be a saint, just plain saint with a T on the end. Every time, biblically speaking, you find the word, it is in the plural because we are saints. All of us as Christians are sanctified, set apart, therefore saints. He says they are in Christ Jesus as well, which are at Philippi, of course that's the city, with, with deacons and bishops. Now, I, I was preparing my mind for the past really eight weeks or so to talk a little bit about the terms the deacons, I'm sorry, I put that in reverse, the bishops and the deacons. And then I'll be honest with you, I'm reading that today and we'll still talk about some of that. And I realized how important the word right before, you can look at it on your page, the word right before bishops really is. The word with. The apostle Paul said, I am Paul, this is Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. And I thought about that so many times and, and looked into it and just kind of scanned across the word with personally and thought to myself, well, he's writing and he wants to be sure that when he's naming individuals, he wants them to know I'm writing to everybody, but I'm also writing to your, to your bishops and to your deacons. In our case, we might say unto your elders and your deacons. But really what he does is calls upon those two groups to be in a, a camaraderie, if there's such a word, and to some extent to carry clout or authority similar to his. Not the same, Paul is writing as an apostle. But he's bringing them up and he puts the word with right there, and I only discovered this because I dug into the word with a lot deeper than I had before. But he brings the word with out right here, basically to say that I'm writing to you, Timothy's writing to you, and also, these bishops and deacons, you may as well say, they've written to you, not physically, obviously, but they're going to call upon you to do the same things I am. And the overall or overriding theme of the book is, is to find joy in whatever situation where you're in. Whatever the trials, whatever the troubles, whatever the difficulties, whatever is causing your, you know, your downtroddenness or depression, he says, find joy in that. And so he's bringing, by using the word with, not instead of the word to, he's bringing them into this, and he's making them a part of this. 
And so what should have happened, I don't know that it did or not, but when this letter was brought to the church at Philippi, uh, supposing read publicly, at least circulated to such, probably read publicly in assembly, if it were to be read by either one of these groups of individuals, bishops or deacons and or deacons, they should have said to themselves, you know what, I agree with, well, I agree with Paul. This is the thing that we want for you. This is a desire that we have for you as an overriding group of saints that meet in Philippi. Now, the word that we're looking at, the words that we're looking at here for bishops, I'll mention one more thing about that in a moment, but the words for bishops right here is basically the Greek word episkopoi or episkopa, depending on how you look at the noun or verb form of it, and that word is the same word or reference to the same word that we found earlier in the text over in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 as well as Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, which is at least one of those two times translated as elder. Acts 20 and verse 7, it is the word elder. That's exactly the way it's translated. It should have been. Acts 20 and verse 28, the word is used again and it's translated there as overseer. And then here we have it translated as bishops right here. The point being the word elder, the word bishop, and the word overseer are all speaking of the same individuals. And so these elders are supposed to be, you would see it in one perspective, the older ones, but not even age-specific as the ones who oversee. And so Paul calls upon them and says, I'm writing to you, as we are servants, as we are the saints that are in Jesus Christ, those who are at Philippi, and I'm writing with your elders. I'm writing in agreement with, you might imply, your elders, your bishops, your overseers, and also with the deacons. You say, okay, now that, that all sounded halfway decent, but where do you get all of that? Because the, the prefix, and this is the way I define it, it's not necessarily what a Greek scholar would, would know about it or anything, but the prefix of the word that we see right here for bishops, again, uh, that word right there, episkopa, there's a prefix in front of it that to us in English letters looks like S-U-N, like the sun in the sky. It looks like the word S-U-N. Just like we would use prefixes in front of words in our English language as we speak sometimes. There's prefixes, there's suffixes at times on Greek words. And the prefix right here, S-U-N, means together in, in cooperation. So he doesn't even use the word here with. What he really does is he takes the word for bishops same word as elders, same word as overseers. But he takes the word in the Greek for bishops, which is episkopoi, and he puts the S-U-N in front and says, so I'm writing with you together in cooperation with your bishops. Now, to some or maybe all or any of you, you're like, I didn't care to hear that, but that's, that's what I see. And that, I think that matters because it sets things up and sets the stage that these brethren there, the saints in general, you might say the average member, uh, they're not just hearing from a man who's halfway across the, the country in prison. They're hearing from locals. 
They're here in a sense, even though inspired of God, penned by Paul in coordination with Timotheus, they're hearing from their eldership. And their eldership with that cooperation, and he's going to use words for cooperation, fellowship, uh, partnership, several times in the next few verses. They're writing together. He puts the same prefix in front of the word for deacon. And it is where, we, where uh, the Greek word would sound something like deaconoi or deaconos. Sometimes we talk about that. It means someone who stirs dust. And I've illustrated that word a few different times uh, as if someone were sweeping a floor, a dirt floor in Jesus' day, and you sweep and sweep, and the more you sweep, you create nothing more than dust. But you don't give up. You don't stop. Well, whether it is the general dust that would be used from a broom or the fact that these individuals are just moving about and doing labor, doing work to the point that the dust around them is being scattered, that's the description of the term that he uses right here that we see in the English as deacons. And so he says, I'm writing with an S-U-N or in coordination alongside of cooperation with your deacons. Again, two different groups, two different roles, the bishops and the deacons. The deacons are the administrators of work that is done in that case locally. Uh, one other thing that I... We want to bring into it also that I, I overlooked. I did mention this a few weeks ago. I'm bringing this back out randomly. But when I talked about the name Paul itself and, and what, what, if any, significance that name had, the word Paul meaning little or the little one, um, you see as you go through the life of Paul, in, at least in his writings, from the earlier letters to the later letters, his mindset about himself and his attitude about his personal authority, if he ever thought he had any, seems to dwindle. Um, he, he does tell us on one occasion, a later occasion, that he was the chief of sinners. If you want to follow that out, there are three verses, there are many more that you could look at. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, he has one mindset about himself, one of his earlier letters. A little bit later in writing, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 has yet another attitude about himself. Seems to have kind of come from being this to this. And then that chief of sinners, 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, I think it's 13. Not sure, I have to look that one back up. But nonetheless, he gets all the way down to that for himself. So that's basically verse 1. Verse 2. Um, Paul's very general, very, I wouldn't say generic, but uh, very general way of speaking about himself or speaking to a group of people. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Very typical. The word grace right here comes from a Greek word. It looks like chiros or chiris, something like that is the idea as we oftentimes define it as the unmerited favor of God. It, it is a more of a Jewish type, so got a Hebraic background to it, a greeting of sorts. Uh, much like we might have started a letter. I remember writing letters when uh, my grandmother lived in Mumford. She lived on Cedars Road. We lived over there where always the parents do. So we're like literally crow flies like three blocks apart 
And I'd write letters and send them through the post office, and I wrote, Dear Grandma, that word dear, similar to this, just a greeting that you might offer a letter with. But, of course, with a lot of significance, because without the grace of God, it's the order in which he always writes that we cannot or cannot possibly have the peace of God. So as he wants grace unto you and peace from God our Father. Of course, peace carries with the idea of, of things that are brought to agreement. Uh, and if two people are in agreement, obviously if they're in complete agreement, there's not going to be any argument. There's not going to be any battles between them. And of course, we can have peace in God uh, after the same manner. So grace be in you and peace. He puts these two together from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's where he's bringing that deity of God together with Christ completely, joining them together, and he's using the word Lord, L-O-R-D right here, to replace the Hebrew term for God for Elohim, but saying unto them that he is the Lord, therefore is the master of things. And so he's in charge. So you got an earlier audience, some of which were either still remained claiming to be Jews and those who were Christians but formerly of the Jewish persuasion, some of which who this catches their attention every time they hear it, those phrases coming together, that of God and that of Jesus Christ. Now, any comment or question? I talked pretty quick on that. All right, as for, according to the longer outline, verses 1 and 2 are kind of a heading of themselves, kind of begin his general introduction. And Paul is beginning to talk about the supplication that he's going to enjoin himself in in the believers. If you look at these verses in the way that they're originally written and, and subdivided, and you can see this if you look very close. I've written all over my Bible, so it's hard to see now. But if you look very closely at your copies of the text, You'll find, if you look at the end of the verses, just like we would write or, or have the tools at our disposal of uh, punctuation, at the very, very end of verse 1, I have a colon. That's subjective to the printer, probably about right as far as the way we handle things. You look at the end of verse 2. Um, what do you have at the end of verse 2? I've written on mine, so, so uh, you have a period. That's probably accurate. Again, English translators and then in turn printers. This is a, I don't even know what the print, this is a world. I've got Nelson's, I've got Holman's, I've got all kind of uh, publishers that put these into print. But as they put in punctuation, keep in mind, they're putting in punctuation that wasn't originally there. The Greek lettering and such did not have that punctuation there. But it is a handy tool for us because when the, when the original manuscripts did have divides and pauses and skips and what have you, they had to gather, as they were translating, they had to gather thoughts, and they gathered it into paragraphs. And so immediately, and I've mentioned this before, I look at this and I think, well, you got two verses, you got two sentences. Now you still got one sentence. We would call it a run-on sentence if it was as long as it is, but it's, it's the translators trying to help us keep up with the thoughts. Some translations will even, this is in the printers, will even uh, either capitalize the first letter of a new paragraph or new thought. 
they'll bold that. Uh, maybe they'll bold the number in front of it or whatever, but you can use those tools as you study to try to give you some idea. Verses 1 and 2, however, are a sentence basically in Greek. And then verses 3 through 11 are yet another thought. Now, how your commas and periods, I couldn't tell you. You'll, you'll see that as you look at it. But how your commas and periods come out in your translation, I'm not sure. But I'm telling you that in the Greek language, the paragraph goes from verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 3 to verse 11. There are some subdivides in there. The thought does shift a bit. And Paul is kicking things off with his supplication for the believers. And as he starts that mindset, that idea, he told them who he prays for, verses 1 and 2. He says, I, you know, I'm thinking about you. I want grace. I want peace to come upon you. I want you to understand that it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ as well as from God. And then in verse 3, he starts really breaking that out and specifies when he prays. He says, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, I may have mentioned this about a month ago when we looked at the introduction to this. This is the first occasion you'll see it in the very first part of verse 3. The first word is the word I. And if you'll follow the word I through this book, and I mean from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, you'll find that approximately 65 times in 45 verses. He'll use the word I. And if, if, if I were talking to you in a personal conversation, we stepped to the side of the church and how was your day and how was your week, and I used the word I 65 times in a few minutes, you'd probably be like, boy, I'm so sick. This guy right here, he ain't asking nothing about me. He don't care anything about me. All he talks about is him. Well, uh, Paul cared deep, deeply for this group of people. Uh, had a lot of compassion, a lot of concern for them. But yet he comes back again and again and again, 65 times in 45 verses, and uses the word I. But every time he uses it, he uses it, and you can follow this yourself. He uses it in such a positive way, even for them. In this verse, is just the first example of that. He said, I thank my God. I thank my God. Now, the word thank right there is a word, and he's going to use this one several, several times. It is a word that carries the idea of calling your name in order that you would be blessed, kind of, sort of. Paul says, I'm thinking to myself that I want you to be blessed. And I'm thinking to myself, in turn, right here, verse 3, what a blessing you've been to me. Now, verse 3, it, it's written either from one or two perspectives. And I think either one could apply and maybe even both. Paul is either saying on a subjective plane, I thank God every time I remotely consider you. Every time I think about Philippi, I think about the saints in Philippi, I think about the bishops and deacons in Philippi, every time I do that, Paul says, basically, that excites me. 
from an objective perspective, why would Paul do that? We hadn't learned it yet, but you'll see in this letter, these were the brethren. There was another group, but this was the main one at this point in his life, ministry. These were the brethren that took care of Paul. These were the brethren that when Paul was suffering, when Paul was hurting, when Paul was in prison, when Paul was wherever he was, enduring whatever he would endure, these were the people who were there to assist. These were the people who apparently had taken up, I don't know what it was, some type of collection, some type of support, some type of assistance, and sent it to Paul. And so from one perspective, Paul could be indicating here that I, every time I remember that, I'm thankful for you. In other words, these brethren had done something specific that impacted Paul. That's why I bring that out. Because we would hope as Christians, especially Christians who worship together and gather together as we do in an assembly uh, on a weekly basis and, and, and more often than that, we would hope that everybody that we would see in front of behind side or whatever of ourselves, we would be able to say about them, well, you know, this person, yes, they're a fellow Christian. Yes, you know, we have com some camaraderie. Again, if that's even a real word, we've got something in common and we're thankful for them. But there's also an indication here like he's presenting of these brethren that the reason he's so fond of them is because they've done so good by him. They've treated him right. And they've, they've treated him above and beyond what other brethren either had chosen to do or had done at least on so many occasions. And we have those relationships as well. We have times where we as Christians, that, you know, we may be fellow Christians with everyone that would assemble as far as they're Christians, so are we. But then there's also a handful or a smithering of people scattered around that same assembly, that building, where we would say, but that brother or that sister or that person, they mean something special. They, they, I got a fine place in my heart because they've helped me so many times. They've assisted me in this way. And that's kind of the way or the mindset, not that we would want to do it for any type of glory, obviously, but that's the mindset that we would hope that anyone would, would be able to have about us. So, you know, that, that brother, that sister, that person, they, they are there for you. They are there to assist. And Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So every time I think of you, every remembrance I have of you, I'm thankful for such. Notice verse 4. Verse 4 comes and adds to that. If that be the case, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. So he says, I thank God. How do you thank God? I do it in every prayer. Every prayer. And then he says it's for you all. What's our replacement for the words you all, y'all? It's the same word that you would say the King James speak would have oftentimes put it they didn't hear. They split the words out, but often would say ye. Jesus would speak, and he didn't say ye, but the words he would use when he would speak to a group would be, I'm speaking to you all, everyone. And so again, Paul had that ability. So how, 
blessed had Paul been by the brethren that met, that were located in and around Philippi, that assembled there. Obviously, pretty, pretty much, uh, uh, plenty. Paul was thankful for all of them. And he says he makes mention of them in every prayer. Always in every prayer of mine, making request. Now that word request right there, I don't know if you write in your Bibles too much. If you want to draw an, a mark from the word request back to the word prayer, same verse, verse 4, you got exactly the same word. They're translated different, prayer and request, but they're exactly the same word. And Paul is saying to them, I make a petition on your behalf. And so it's not just a general, generalized prayer that he's making where he says, you know, God, I'm so thankful for the brethren. He does this, but it's not exactly what he does. He's not just saying, God, I'm so thankful for the brethren at Philippi. They're great folks. He's saying specifically the word that is used here at least is he's saying, God, help these brethren. And what is it they need help with? In the letter, they need help being encouraged to find joy. And that's where the first time the word joy occurs in this verse. Always, verse 4, in every prayer of mine, making request with joy. And I don't know if you have a center column reference. I've got some. I don't even have to know how to read them most of the time. It takes too long to trace around. But whether you do or don't, Acts 16 and verse 25. Again, that's where Paul and Silas are there in the Philippian prison and they're singing praises to God. That's how that, that account, that storyline opens itself up. These brethren are singing praises to God. So he found a way to find joy in his worst days. Now, as far as other situations that are not exactly specific to this, but because Paul's letter to the Corinthians predates the letter to the Philippians right here, you can go back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, start reading about verse 23, where Paul starts reviewing all the difficulties he's had. All the times he had been beaten with many stripes, uh, shipwrecked, apparently, possibly even stoned, all the things that he had endured previous to this, you can imagine that Paul is referencing back to all of that. And he knows that he has the ability to find joy. Now, one of the things that we'll see a little bit later in this, not quite yet, but, but we will get to it, is where Paul finds the joy. And that Paul is not making a claim here that he has arrived and that he's found joy in himself or that he's found joy because he happened to like the, the jailer he's with or the fellow prisoner that he was with at the time in Silas, he finds joy in those situations through God. So he says, always in every prayer, making mention and making request with joy. We'll pick up right there next week, next time we meet. So verse five, basically, we'll pick up. I appreciate your attention.